Some of you have some sense of who it is that you might be already. Or maybe it's because you've had years of work or trial and error. Uh, maybe you've had lots of relationships that failed while others succeeded. And through it all, that dense fog that obscures the true self, the true you, has begun to recede. And you can see a bit clearer, a uh, bit more clearly than you could in years prior. Others of you still have no clue who you might be. And maybe because of that, you feel aimless or numb and without purpose. You look to the horizon to see only a veil that covers your identity and your calling and your potential. And still others know only the version of themselves that they'd like to be or who they believe someone else would like them to be. And so they do things like curate an image online or they hide in the crowd or they chase an illusion and with pretense and posturing they wear a heavy mask unsure of what actually lies beneath. And so they scramble and claw and yelp at the wall that separates their present self from their desired self. And perhaps the self that lies beyond the wall is the true self, but maybe not. And at any rate, they go on clawing at the craggy face of the wall, scaling a few feet now and then, falling and scraping their knees again and again and again. And this dilemma is one of terrible urgency for those of us who follow Jesus of Nazareth, because in our journey to know God, one must also learn to know one's own self. And before you dismiss such a notion as modern or overly mystic, or self-helpy, or unbiblical psychobabble, please understand that the earliest church fathers, along with writers and thinkers and pastors and theologians of all sorts of Christian traditions, all down throughout church history, have all argued that knowing oneself is an essential journey for every disciple of Jesus. For instance, in the fourth century, Augustine wrote this, May I know you, God, and may I know myself. The theologian Thomas Kempis said, a humble self-knowledge is a surer way to God than a search after deep learning. Around the 12th century, the Dominican scholar St. Catherine of Siena said, when we are who we are called to be, we will set the world ablaze. And around that same time, German theologian Meister Eckhart wrote, no one can know God who does not first know himself or herself. And modern psychologist David Binner summarizes all of these ideas well, I think, by saying this. Christian spirituality has a great deal to do with the self, not just with God. The goal of the spiritual journey is the transformation of self. This requires knowing both ourself and God. Both are necessary if we are to discover our true identity as those who are in Christ. Because the self is where we meet God. Both are also necessary if we are to live out the uniqueness of our vocation. What so many voices throughout the history of the Christian, Christian tradition have argued is that in order to walk the road of discipleship, to experience spiritual formation, to know God himself, one must discover their identity and calling. But of course, doing so is no simple undertaking. You probably know that already. Because as long as the great thinkers of the faith have argued that it is essential for us to discover our identity and calling, they have also emphasized that this is an idea of discovery, which is why we chose to name this series Discovering Your Identity and Calling. And we use that word with great intentionality because identity and calling are not things that one designs themselves. They are not created by the person who bears them. We believe that they are both gifts 
from God the Father. And of course, because of the freedom that God has wired into creation, into humanity in particular, you will not be coerced into receiving the gift of your identity and calling. And consequently, many reject it or else they live utterly oblivious to it for much of their lives. But it doesn't have to be that way. Turn in your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. At Van City, we have built our church around the idea of apprenticing Jesus of Nazareth. We understand Jesus of Nazareth to be the Messiah, or in the language of the Scriptures, He is the promised King of Israel and of the entire world. We also believe that Jesus is the Lord. He is the Creator God incarnated, in theology speak, as a human being. He is the Savior of the world. Because of His death and burial and resurrection, we now await the renewal of all things while enjoying glimpses of the coming kingdom in the here and now. But we also believe that one of the tragically overlooked identities of Jesus, every bit as important as everything I've just said, is that Jesus was and is a teacher. In fact, if you read the biographies of Jesus' life, he is addressed more so than any other title as rabbi, which is a word that means teacher. Jesus teaches a way of life, a new way to be a human being, and those who follow him set out to do three things, to be with Jesus, that's important, to become like Jesus. The idea when you apprentice under a master is that you begin to look and act and speak and behave just like them, and then to eventually do what Jesus did. So when you apprentice Jesus, you apprentice under a way of life. And so we at Van City set out to actually practice the way of Jesus together. That's what we're trying anyway. We're not perfect. We're not all the way there yet, but that's what we're going for. We don't want to just read stories about Jesus and sing songs about Jesus, but we want to actually take his lifestyle and his teachings and put them into practice together. Now, how that shakes out pragmatically is that every few weeks, we take on a new practice from the life of Jesus or a principle of emotional and spiritual health. We believe both things, the spiritual disciplines and the principles of emotional health, work in concert to enable disciples of Jesus to walk the road of spiritual formation, or in other words, to become more like our teacher and our Lord. So with every new practice, we discuss it a bit here on Sunday evenings like we're doing now through teachings, and then we get together throughout the week in smaller groups called Van City Communities to actually practice it together. We get together and we give it a shot with all the clumsy trial and error and success and failure and beauty and struggling that it entails. Thus, if your identity and calling are both things that you don't craft yourself, but rather that you receive from God the Father, then we at Man City want to go on the journey of self-discovery together. And as usual, Jesus, our teacher, will guide us. So that said, let's look at Matthew chapter 4 together and read along with me beginning in verse 18. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. Now, we read in that story that these fishermen were called 
by Jesus. In Greek, the word is kaleo. Later, this very same word comes to be translated as our English word vocation, which is interesting. Our, our idea of calling and vocation as something given by Jesus begins here. And one dimension of that idea is very straightforward. You are called to follow Jesus, and it's that simple. But there's actually more to it than that. The invitation to follow, of course, implies that you are going somewhere with Jesus. You are invited to follow on a journey. Turn just a few pages to the right to Matthew chapter 9, if you don't mind. Matthew chapter 9, Jesus is continuing his work, going about the ancient Near East, calling would-be apprentices to come and follow him. Let's read Matthew 9, beginning in verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing that, Jesus said, it's like Jesus overhears them, that's embarrassing. Jesus said, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. So go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners." So there again, the word, kaleo, call. In this story, who is it that Jesus has come to kaleo? Who does Jesus come to call? Sinners. Thanks, fast. I like that. I appreciate that enthusiasm. Sinners. Now, I realize that such a word is about as religious sounding as anything in Bible vernacular, and many of us probably have a muddy understanding of what exactly the term means. But interestingly, Jesus' use of the term sinners here in Matthew 9 is actually one of the rare occasions the term is employed to describe disciples at all. And yet here in this story, it shows up three times in just a few short lines of narrative. Jesus calls, and he calls in particular sinners. In terms of uh, authorship, the pervading theory is that the Gospel of Matthew was written by none other than the very gentleman of the same name introduced in this story. Here, he's Matthew the tax collector, uh, or in other words, he's the sinner in Jesus' context. Now, to us... He's Matthew the Apostle. He's Matthew the author of one of the world's most important historical documents. And if you know anything about that, this biography or about the three other first century biographies of Jesus, then you know that Matthew went on a journey. He went from sinner or tax collector to apostle, author of one of the biographies of Jesus. All that to reiterate that one fundamental dimension of our calling is simply to follow Jesus. If you're a disciple of Jesus... You, good start. You're on it. But, so you're called to be an apprentice and all that that implies. It's a, it's a bunch. But another dimension of calling that unfolds in tandem with that first dimension is the idea that when we do follow Jesus, we will go on a road of self-discovery. And that journey is one that happens on both the inside and on the outside. What I mean is that the inward journey is about going from who you were to someone who is more like Jesus all the time. The outward journey has more to do with that word kaleo translated as vocation, meaning the outward journey is probably more about what you do as the person you are becoming, your job or your career or your vision for life or your contribution to the world around you in the kingdom of God. Both the inward and the outward dimensions of self-discovery are essential to the journey of discovering your identity and calling. So we're going to spend a bit of time working with both ideas. This week, let's talk more about the inner journey. To do so, let's go back to that oh-so-appealing word from a few moments ago, sinner. Um, at the outset of your journey, you are 
Matthew the tax collector, as it were, or Matthew the sinner, or whoever you are, the sinner. And such an idea, I realize, is not exactly in vogue at the moment. We live in an interesting moment in time in which the idea of sin itself is both dismissed and the presence of sin is reviled with extreme prejudice. And here's what I mean. Just a few days ago, a close friend of mine, I've known him since the third grade. We've been very close for many years. He reached out to me to pick my brain about some issues he was having uh, with the Bible and with the community that he's a part of where he lives. And he, he's begun to think through a conflict he sees with certain behaviors and identities that the world around him, the culture around him seems to celebrate, though they seem to deviate from the teachings of Jesus. And he's sincerely wrestling through the implications, which is very good and necessary. So I commended him. I said, hey, it's really good to think about this kind of stuff. Don't beat yourself up that you don't have an answer yet. Take your time. Think through it. Read some stuff. Talk to some people. But I said, I, I would like you to consider something from the outset as you begin this journey of thinking through it. I said, assume that there is a right and a wrong here. And logically, there, there has to be. And this, to my thinking, is the great overlooked conflict hiding in plain sight. Because everyone believes in an absolute and objective truth. They just do. Everyone believes that they operate within a worldview which is right and thus renders all conflicting worldviews wrong. And the post-Christian aversion to the church is just one easy example of that. I'm, I've often entered into or been exposed to conversations in which critics of the way of Jesus will cite as their main misgiving with the way of Jesus something like, oh, I just can't accept a view that assumes it's the true way and that other views are wrong. And of course, in saying as much, such a person is arguing that their view, rejecting Jesus, is the right view, and the conflicting view, accepting Jesus, is the wrong view. And there's just no way around that. Um, I follow this musician whose work I deeply admire. He was once a disciple of Jesus, only to become famously estranged from God over the course of a discography. And this fellow is constantly celebrating his you know, newly discovered agnosticism. Uh, in one lyric, he even sings, Why are some hell-bent upon there being an answer? Some are quite content to answer, I don't know. And of course, the conflict, to my estimation, is built into the lyricism. That is, the off by the author's admission, I don't know is an answer. <laughs> and so he goes about extolling the superiority of agnosticism over and against theism or even atheism, which to his estimation are both too exclusive and too resolute. And so he says things, I'm being hyperbolic now, but he says things like, oh man, these fools with their minds made up, arguing that other people are wrong and that they're right. If only they knew that I'm right because my mind is made up that my mind isn't made up. And you, you get the point where I'm going with this, right? You all, everyone believes something. Everyone believes that they have an objective truth of some kind, even if your objective truth is that ambiguity is objective truth. Everyone believes they have a correct worldview over and against other incorrect worldviews. There's no way around that. That's just the way that it is. And so the host culture tends to balk at the idea of there being a right and a wrong, while, of course, sharing an innate sense of right and wrong and, the, and reserving the right to argue for its validity at all times. So when we learn that yet another noteworthy individual has been accused of sexual assault, we rightly recoil. We think, oh, that's deplorable, it's awful, it shouldn't be this way, and you should feel that way. And the cultural assumption seems to be, in the language of uh, Mark Sayers, author Mark Sayers, that you can have the kingdom of God without the king. 
Because we so badly want, for example, an end to sexual assault. We want an end to violence, for example. We want an end to war and to sexism and to misogyny and to racism and to inequality, to xenophobia, to abuse, to greed, to materialism. We know that these things are wrong. We share an, an innate aversion to them. But the pervasive notion seems to be, well, if we could just get the right politician or if we could get the right political party in charge, or if we could get the right financial systems or the right hashtags, then we can move toward a utopian society, and it would be essentially the kingdom of God. We just don't want anyone telling us when we're right or wrong. Uh, We want sin without sinners. We want the kingdom without the king. But the scriptures teach that human beings are bent out of shape. We are all warped in such a way that we desire and do things that sabotage ourselves and other people and the world around us. Or we do good things for bad reasons, or at least with mixed motivations. In the language of Cyberdyne Systems Model 101 Series 800 Terminator, played by Arnold Schwarzenegger, it's in your nature to destroy yourselves. (laughs) To which his friend John Connor replies, yeah, major drag, huh? (laughs) Patrick insisted that I put those on a slide. The point is, we are bent towards selfishness and we destroy ourselves. This is true of humanity as a whole. So, for the human being who is a disciple of Jesus, walking the road of self-discovery, part of that thick fog that obscures the true self, who you really are, the wall you can't climb, the veil that keeps you lingering in aimlessness, is something called sin. And yes, the baggage the Word carries impresses upon it a confusing weight. But the Scriptures... Uh, use the word this way. In both the Hebrew and the Greek context, the word is, of all things, an archery term. Interesting, huh? To sin is to miss the mark. So if the bullseye is the loving and kind Father's good and perfect desire for you and the people around you and the world around you, that all of the above might thrive and be whole and experience life to the fullest, then sin is when you miss that bullseye, when you fall short. And this means that there is a mark, and to live as God's people means aiming to hit said mark, and one can succeed or fail in varying degrees. So the scriptures are filled with this word, an idea of sin, and they're also filled with this word, an idea of something called shalom. Often it's simply translated as the English word peace, but shalom in the Hebrew context means so much more. Shalom is the idea of God's peace and wholeness and goodness of the garden rightly realized in humanity and in creation. And so theologian Cornelius Plantinga describes sin as the vandalism of shalom. So to unpack this concept even further, we're going to exploit a paradigm discovered or described by Robert Mulholland in his book, Invitation to a Journey. In it, Mulholland argues that there are actually four layers of sin that the disciple of Jesus will encounter on the road to self-discovery. These four layers aren't a new concept. They were actually developed by early church fathers and described back then as something called purgation, which I think sounds cooler, but we'll go with four layers of sin. Um, They they argue that it was a kind of like sin purgatory, that on your road to self-discovery, you have to burn away one layer at a time. So the first, if you're taking notes, is called gross sins. And this is the kind of egregious evil that most human beings would agree is probably not a great idea. Things like murder and adultery and even theft and idolatry, things that humans go, that's not so great. Um, The second layer is called deliberate sins. These sins are widely accepted as permissible 
or innocuous or no big deal. But for the disciple of Jesus, these things violate the teachings of our rabbi and our Lord. And the examples are, of course, innumerable. Um, illegally downloading music or movies or TV shows or, or buying clothes and food and things that you don't need while refusing to grow in generosity or, or buying, like Katie was just talking about, from retailers and brands that fund human trafficking and slave labor so that you can have cooler outfits or cheaper coffee or chocolate, whatever it might be, buying food that funds the abuse of God's creation while destroying your body simultaneously, all things that many do without a second thought, even disciples of Jesus, but that do directly violate the teachings of our Lord. The third layer is called unconscious sin. Now, believe it or not, there are things you do, identities in which, <coughs> pardon me, you operate, lies that you believe, habits in which you persist, that miss the mark, so to speak, and you don't even realize it, at least not yet. Often such sins don't even manifest outwardly at all. They can be transpiring entirely within you. I mentioned uh, recently, a few weeks ago, the way that the Spirit had convicted me about trains of thought that I entertain when I feel hopeless or discouraged. And I realized that in my mind, often I think without affecting my outward behavior at all, I had grown to use my discouragement as escapism. And I would sort of inwardly entertain the idea that everything is awful and everything sucks in order to pick at like an awful psychological scab. It's a weird thing. I don't know why. But the Spirit said, stop it. Don't do that. That's, that's not appropriate for you as a disciple of Jesus. That's sin. And I didn't even realize that I was doing it, at least not knowingly or, or deliberately, not really anyway. Maybe for you it's something like a grudge that you nurture or it's long-stewarded unforgiveness or bitterness or maybe it's subconscious envy or comparison to other people. Maybe you've yet to realize that some very good thing that you do is actually compelled by the wrong motivation. Um, maybe you've yet to act on the Spirit's instruction. He told you to do something and you've put it aside. Or maybe a prophetic word was spoken over your life and you've yet to act on it or you've simply chosen to ignore it. Not knowingly or deliberately per se, but it misses the mark all the same. It is sin in the language of the Scriptures. And finally, the fourth dimension of sin is called trust structures. Robert Mulholland defines these as those deep inner postures of our being that do not rely on God, but on self for our well-being. This is the carrot that you chase for contentment, and it isn't God. Often the carrot really isn't a bad thing at all. It could be your family, or it could be work, or a hobby, or travel, or your friends. And those things are good, but they aren't Jesus. And you are looking to them for something that only Jesus has to offer, which is life. Now, one interesting thing about the four ancient dimensions of sin is that only layers one and two addressed your outward behavior, while layers three and four move on to something called your shadow side. One writer who has been massively influential to our practices is a gentleman named Pete Scazzaro, who wrote a book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. In it, he defines the shadow side as the accumulation of untamed emotions, less than pure motives and thoughts that, while largely unconscious, strongly influence and shape your behaviors. It is the damaged but mostly hidden version of who you are. And listen, the shadow side is very different than simply like your character flaws in general. Think of your identity and your calling as a landmark in the world. It was constructed by God. It stands uniquely yours in a sea of other people, but it also casts a shadow. 
The good things that make you who you are, the good things tethered to who God has made you to be and what God has asked you to do, beneath them often lies a shadow. And here's what I mean. Throughout this series, we will use something called uh, the Enneagram, which it looks like it would just begun either a metal album or witchcraft or something. It's just geometry. It's fine. It, it's a <laughs> Earlier, I was putting slides together, and I think it was Katie or someone just came up, and she's like, what kind of church are we? Yeah. Uh, the word Enneagram is a, is a Greek word that means nine points, and that's what's going on up there. And that's what it is. It's a nine-pointed geometric image that illustrates nine certain types of personalities. Now, I'm sure many of you have heard of or even worked with the Enneagram already, and it has experienced a major resurgence in popularity via modern personality test enthusiasts who, I would argue personally, uh, sometimes misrepresent its purpose altogether. The Enneagram is really a resource developed uh, by ancient priests as a tool for spiritual formation specifically. The leading theory is that the Enneagram was first developed, or the ideas that became the Enneagram were first developed in the writings of someone called Evagrius Pontius, who was a Greek Christian contemplative living in the Egyptian desert in the 4th century, um, who did a lot of writing on the seven deadly sins. Now, we know for sure that it was utilized by the early church before it waned in popularity. It resurfaced in the 70s when it was used again by Jesuit priests before it started to spread throughout many church traditions altogether. Now, let's get a couple of things out of the way before we get into the Enneagram mumbo-jumbo. Uh, the Enneagram's not in the Bible, all right? You heard me say it, so don't come tell me. Um, it's not a hard science. It's just a tool. It's a resource, and that's okay. Uh, to be perfectly honest, I was for a long time hostile toward the Enneagram because uh, I'm quite hostile toward personality tests. I had, I've been seeing uh, my therapist who's a PhD and a disciple of Jesus for two years before he finally brought the Enneagram up. Uh, maybe he knew. This is like, I'm going to wait on this guy. He's a, he's a work in progress. And when he told me about it, he, he really just said, listen, it's just a resource. It's not in the Bible, but it was developed from the teachings of Scripture by priests, by people who follow Jesus. It's not a hard science, but it is a useful psychological tool. But what really got me was when he said, Josh, I honestly don't know of a better resource in terms of understanding identity in the context of spiritual formation. And I said, okay, I'm listening. Tell me more about this weird metal album thing. See, the Enneagram differs from other personality tests in that it isn't designed to simply encode your behavior. It isn't designed to give you a tag that at the end you say, hey, I'm an INFJ or woo or whatever it might be. The Enneagram is designed to enable one to understand their shadow side, that they might utilize the best resources, the best spiritual disciplines in order to overcome your shadow side. And we'll get to all that throughout the series and the practices that we're doing right now. Uh, Cam likes to joke that when used correctly, the Enneagram should always be at least a little bit of a bummer because it's not about, oh boy, I'm this type. It's about uncovering your root sin. You know, doesn't that sound like fun? Same. One of my own personal misgivings about po uh, popular personality tests, be it Myers-Briggs or Strength Finders or DISC, is that on a popular level at least, and I'm sure you're the one who uses them right or whatever, 
that on a popular they seem to do little more than simply label existing behaviors and provide us with excuses for your shortcomings. So that you end up with people saying like, oh, was I rude? Or I'm sorry, did I flake out on you? Well, you have to understand I'm this. I'm an introvert. And that gives me a permission slip to behave this way at all times. It's just how I am. And I'm saying that as someone that my therapist describes as an introvert. And remember, I'm also prone to self-hatred, so I'm a self-hating introvert. Oh, it's such a hard place to be in. My point is, again, again, that the Enneagram was not designed to label your personality. It's, It's designed to provide disciples of Jesus with a guidebook for overcoming their shadow side or to purge the sin that is uniquely tethered to your personality and your wiring. So to put things bluntly, when and if you hear folks using the Enneagram like it's Myers-Briggs, I would argue that this is a complete misuse of the tool. That's not what it's for. Uh, The authors of The Road Back to You, which is a book about the Enneagram and Christian spirituality, put it like this. The true purpose of the Enneagram is to reveal to you your shadow side and offer spiritual counsel on how to open it to the transformative light of grace. Coming face to face with your deadly sin can be hard, even painful, because it raises, raises to conscious awareness the nastier bits about who we are that we'd rather not think about. No one should work with the Enneagram if what they seek is flattery, but no one should fail to do so if what they seek is deep knowing of self. Now, the Enneagram outlines nine types of personalities. Um, just to get this out of the way, I am apparently a, a type four, which is uh, a way that I can advise you guys out of my weakness. So you're about to hear a lot about what's really bad about type fours. Um, here's a bit, from, for example, of how this thing works from uh, an author, A.J. Sherrill, about the shadow side of the type four. He begins by saying this, A type 4's orientation toward life is often romantic and aesthetic and artistic. 4's can unlock beauty in the world for others. Hey, that sounds great. So exciting. 4's interiorized life, which can spawn self-absorption, depression, and introversion. 4's can be attracted to pain, loss, and seasons of darkness, and easily turn to morbid thoughts, and self-hatred becomes their disposition. I was like, well, forget this book. I'm not reading about this thing anymore. And of course, as you'll see, The Enneagram is really not a one-size-fits-all box, uh, but for me personally, this quote that I just read you guys is terribly accurate. That is a part of my shadow side. And this is of tremendous importance because most of us are completely blind to our shadow side, frankly, or at least to a lot of it. What is your shadow side? Well, as previously mentioned, the Enneagram outlines nine types. They are as follows. You have the perfectionist, the helper, the performer, the individualist, the investigator, the loyalist, the enthusiast, the challenger, and the peacemaker. And let's have a brief word on each. And please, I want you to remember, I'm going to say this a lot because I feel the need to to just really (laughs) hammer it in. I want you to remember this isn't Myers-Briggs. It isn't a perfect box into which you can comfortably sit. Some of you will um, find that you read about the types and you resonate wildly and inevitably some less so. And that's totally fine. That's normal. I think we have such a wacky view of tools like this one that I'll often hear people reading through the type saying, oh my gosh, me, me, this is so me. Oh my gosh, that's me. And then they suddenly arrive at a line that either they don't like or that maybe really doesn't describe them perfectly. And they go, oh, never mind. This can't be me because that sentence doesn't describe me perfectly. Remember, it's not like that. It's a tool. It's not a horoscope. So that's fine. Now, 
We're going to move, move through these guys quickly because I think it can be helpful. First, you have type 1, the perfectionist. Uh, my wife, Abby, is a type 1. This is sometimes called uh, the reformer as well. A type 1 can be described as ethical, dedicated, and reliable, motivated by a desire to live the right way, improve the world, and avoid fault or blame. For a type 1, the deep-seated root sin is anger. Um, this is from the language of the book. Ones feel a compulsive need to perfect the world. Keenly aware that neither they nor anyone else can live up to their impossibly high standards, they experience anger in the form of smoldering resentment. Nice. <laughs> Uh, type 1s are often most motivated to be perfect. They want everything to be just so. So when a type 1 is healthy and mature, they can do great things. They can call others to a beautiful standard of holiness that they care deeply for. But when they are unhealthy or immature, they can be hypercritical, self-righteous, judgmental. Nothing is good enough. Next comes the type 2, the helper. A uh, shocker, if you didn't know, our very own Katie Van... Katie, are you in here anywhere? Miss Katie? Katie. Type 2. You excited about that? Katie is a type 2. Uh, so is our friend Bethany who was here teaching last week. Twos uh, can be warm and nurturing and generous and compelled by a desire to be loved and needed, often without acknowledging their own needs at all. And the root sin here, believe it or not, is pride. Twos direct all their attention and energy toward meeting the needs of others while disavowing having any of their own. They secretly believe that they alone know what's best for others and that their indispensable and that their indispensable reveals their prideful spirit. Twos, I'm sorry to tell you who's who and then read the bad things about you. I did it for myself. You'll be fine. Twos are driven by a, a deep felt desire to be needed. So when they are healthy and mature, they can be kind and affectionate and they make you feel wonderful and it's a very necessary and needed thing. But when they are unhealthy and immature, they can be manipulative, they use flattery in order to have their needs met, they get attached, they get enmeshed. Type three is the performer. They care about winning. They care about their image, productivity. Most of all, they want to be successful. They want to be free of failure, or they least want to appear this way to other people. And the root sin is deceit. Threes value appearance over substance, abandoning their true selves to project a false, crowd-pleasing image. Threes buy their own performance and deceive themselves into believing they are their persona. And the three's root motivation is achievement. They want to look good to other people. And even so, when a three is healthy and mature, they can really make inspiring leaders because they're driven by the need to grow and to develop and they bring other people along on that same journey. But when they're unhealthy and immature, a three is vain and self-obsessed. They brag, they lie, they trample other people in order to get to the front of the line and be admired, even if it's superficially. Uh, Instagram is apparently populated entirely by threes. And I can pick on them because here comes type four, uh, some, something called the, the romantic or the individualist. A four is, in the language of one author, uh, creative, sensitive, and moody. They are motivated by a need to be understood, experience their oversized feelings, and avoid being ordinary. And the root sin is envy. Uh, fours believe they are missing something essential without which they will never become complete. They envy of what they perceive to be the wholeness and happiness of others. So the root motivation is apparently to be special and to be unique. So when a four is healthy, they can be creative and imaginative with a very high sense of personal integrity uh, and they don't sell out. But when they are unhealthy, they're melancholy and morbid and undisciplined and they become loners. It's not great. Okay, on to type five. Um, 
One author describes this type as analytical, detached, private. They're motivated by a need to gain knowledge and conserve energy and avoid relying on others. And the root sin is avarice, which I realize is a weird word. It's just a word that describes a kind of greed. In this case, it's like the hoarding of one's own ideas and one's own time and one's own self. Fives hoard those things they believe will ensure they can live an independent, self-sustaining existence. This withholding ultimately leads to their holding back love and affection from others. A type 5 is compelled by the need to be competent and capable, and when they're healthy and mature, they're intelligent, they're informed, they're pensive, they're insightful. When they're not, they can be aloof and isolated and withdrawn. They waste tremendous amounts of time obsessing over things that don't matter at the expense of the people around them. Type 6 is the loyalist. Uh, they're dedicated, pragmatic, really bright, um, but often concerned for the bad things that could happen, and thus the root sin is fear. Forever imagining worst-case scenarios and questioning their ability to handle life on their own, sixes turn to authority figures and belief systems rather than God to provide them with the support and security they yearn for. A six's root motivation is the need for security and for support. So when they're healthy, they're tremendously faithful. Even through the worst of times, they can be steady when other people waver. But when they're immature and unhealthy, they become racked with fear and prone to isolation. Seven is the enthusiast. Uh, uh, seven is typically quite fun and outgoing and full of adventure, the life of the party. On the other hand, they'll do just about anything to avoid pain. And the root sin is gluttony, in this case not for food only, but for life itself. The idea is that to avoid painful feelings, sevens gorge themselves on positive experiences, planning and anticipating new adventures and entertaining interesting ideas. Never satisfied, the sevens' frenzied pursuit of these distractions eventually escalates to the point of gluttony. So when a seven's healthy and mature, the, you know, the benefits are obvious. The enthusiasm and the joy become contagious. They're full of wonderful energy. It spreads beautifully amongst people who really need it. But when they're unhealthy and immature, they find themselves unable to deal with emotional pain. They're given to addiction, and they fight to be the center of attention. We're almost there. Two more. Type 8 is the challenger. An 8 has a commanding presence. They're intense. They're confrontational. They're driven by the desire for strength while putting off weakness and vulnerability. And the root sin of all things is lust. 8s lust after intensity. It can be seen in the excessiveness they evidence in every area of life. Domineering and confrontational, 8s present a hard, intimidating exterior, exterior to mask vulnerability. An eight wants to be in control of their own life, and when they're healthy, an eight is a strong, wonderful uh, presence. They confront injustice and oppression. They exude charisma. They bring people along for the journey with them. Um, it's often thought that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. may have been an eight, a healthy one at that. But when an eight is unhealthy or immature, they are angry and overbearing and rude. And finally, the last type is nine, the peacemaker. Uh, Patrick, my brother who's up here playing bass, is a, a nine. And honestly, this description seems to fit him if you know him. A nine is pleasant and affable and laid back and accommodating. But a nine's, I gotta stop saying the name, sorry Patrick, but a nine's need to keep the peace can often mutate into merging with other people just to avoid conflict, going with the flow to a fault, and the root sin is sloth. Uh, <laughs> For nine, sloth refers not to physical, but to spiritual laziness. Nines fall asleep to their own priorities, personal development, and responsibility for becoming their own person. 
A nine's root motivation is the need for peace, which is why they're called the peacemaker. And when they're healthy and mature, they're chill and calming and wise and discerning. They make other people feel relaxed and at ease. They make other people feel heard and understood, which is a beautiful thing. When they're unhealthy and immature, they can become passive-aggressive or lazy, or they avoid conflict at all costs, which is not healthy. Now, a quick word on the nuance of the Enneagram. There's a reason it looks like a weird shape, and that's because there's actually quite a bit to it. If you decide to learn more, you'll discover that, again, it's not a box. Some of you will see that most you most fit the profile of a certain type, but that you lean into another type as well. This is sometimes called a wing. So I might be like, you know, so you might hear someone say, I'm a four with a five wing, meaning that primarily you fit this identity with aspects of the other identity. For many, there will also be times when you deviate from your type, and in many cases, assume the characteristics of another type altogether, in particular under instances of intense stress. For example, I read this week that many type 1s move toward type 4 behavior under duress. And there are also really interesting relational dynamics. Some types often make particularly wonderful friends with other types. Some types move toward certain other types for healing. Um, some types can make uniquely toxic patterns together. I, I read recently that it's most difficult to be married to a type 4. Sorry, Abby. And, and get this, one core fear of the type 4, here's why, uh, is the fear of being controlled. And one primary concern of a type 1 is to have everything under control. Um, and we're working on it. Pray for Abby. Uh, but honestly, the, the beauty of that is that knowing that has been tremendously helpful for us, really. And because none of that means that you must be friends with certain types, you know, designated by this geometric shape. It doesn't mean that you can't be in relationship with certain people. It's all a tool to help you better understand relational dynamics that you might learn and grow on your journey of self-formation. Which brings me to my final point on the types. More often than not, it's likely... Whichever number you most dislike upon reading is your type. And this is why uh, my therapist warned me that any I was talking to him about this series and being like, I just don't want to do it. I hate personality. He's like, Josh, you have to do it. Um, <clears throat> I'm working on my impression of him. It's not great. Um, but he said, you know, we, we need balance. We need someone to say it's a tool. It's not like a way of life. And, um, and he, he was saying that... Uh, any series on the Enneagram should be equal parts informative and sobering. Or actually, the word he used was awful. Uh, because discovering your type is a bit like reading your worst, most private garbage, finely articulated by a stranger. And so this week, you will begin the journey of discovering your Enneagram type. If you already know, awesome, great job. Be there to help your community as they begin the process. Here are a few, here are a few resources for the ride. First of all, uh, EnneagramInstitute.com has a test that could be helpful for some in determining your type. And I word it that way because I do not believe personally that the best way to determine your number is to simply take an online test, at least not just that. And I'm not the only one. One expert I read this week said that she believes the test is inaccurate about 62% of the time. And I know many intelligent Enneagram enthusiasts, of, uh, I'm not one as you can tell, who say that the test gives them faulty or unhelpful results. And one reason is that because it's just not that easy to arrive at an answer with this thing. How can an online test determine the sinful inner motivation of your soul? So I like to think of the test as one resource among many in determining your type. Never ever rely on the test alone. So if you believe you know your type and, and the only means by which you do so is the test, 
I would strongly recommend going on this journey again. You could be totally right, and that's great, but, you know, just go along for the ride. So take the test. That's fine. But also read about the types. Ask your community what they think. And please be kind and encouraging and gentle with one another. Maybe just focus on the positive things when you're trying to help each other find your types. And then think through it and pray about it. And, and, you know, if you have a therapist or a counselor who happens to be versed in the Enneagram, you can ask them to diagnose you, as it were. Uh, mine suggests simply reading through the types, finding yourself in one of them, and then begin to ask others for feedback. Does this sound like me to you? What would you say about it? And again, when reading through the types, if you find one that feels a bit like someone has uncovered your dark secrets, you're probably on the right track. Um, here are some books that will also be helpful if you're interested. Uh, the Road Back to You by Ian Morgan Crone and Suzanne Stabile. The Enneagram, A Christian Perspective is one of the more popular ones by Richard Rohr. Uh, Enneagram and the Way of Jesus uh, by A.J. Sherrill. This is a tiny little book. You can read it in like one sitting. Really straightforward, really basic. And the beautiful thing about uh, most of the books on the Enneagram is that if you're looking for your type, it's not entirely necessary to read the whole thing cover to cover, but you can kind of browse around, read types, and revisit so I would recommend checking out the books. Now, I have a few warnings for your communities as you take on the Enneagram this week. So bear with me for just a few more minutes, please. First is this. You don't have to do this. And frankly, um, if you do not have a humble disposition and an open mind, then don't do it. Uh, I realize and understand many have hang-ups about such a thing. It should be obvious by now that I do. Um, it took me a while to even open up about it at all. Uh, and that was because I had several long talks with pastors and theologians and psychologists about it. But we do ask this. If you are unwilling to even try, then don't bring your community down with you. Let's face it, some of you won't do the practices. We know that, uh, and we can't make you, nor are we interested in trying to make you do the practices. But do not, please, do not become a hindrance to the men and women in your, in your community who are giving it a shot please, if we can ask just that much. And really, you'll be the one missing out. Even if the Enneagram turns out to be not your thing or just baloney altogether, the idea is that you'll be spending time with your community trying to figure out how to best follow Jesus together. I think you can wade through a little personality test and some conversations to do that if you're so inclined. Now next, remember the Enneagram is not a tool, or pardon me, the Enneagram is a tool for spiritual formation. It is not a weapon to use against other people. So if this tool helps you better understand your journey of spiritual formation as well as the journeys of some of the people in your community, that's awesome. If it becomes a resource in bringing others down to size and reminding other people of their shadow side or fitting everyone into a box, they do this because they're this type, then don't use it altogether. Please reject it with extreme prejudice. Which brings me to my next warning. Please, please do not label each other. Don't call people by their number. Please don't say things like, what a four thing to say. Please. If you do, you are banned from the Enneagram forever. <laughs> not really, but close to that. And, and honestly, that might sound like a, a nitpick, but I think such a thing really radically trivializes the intended purpose of the tool. I don't care if you disrespect the Enneagram, but the purpose behind it, I think, is one that is sobering and necessary. Remember, the whole point is your shadow side. And labeling people is, in essence, identifying them entirely by their root sin. And you are not your root sin. So don't do that to each other, please. There was a time when 
ancient priests, I read this this week, kept the Enneagram a complete secret until a disciple had proven their maturity and willingness to handle such a thing. And now it lives in dozens of books and websites and podcasts, so we have to do the hard work of keeping it from becoming goofy and reckless and nonsense. And next, never ever use the Enneagram to simply encode your behavior. Or in other words, don't use it to make excuses. Don't say things like, yeah, I know I'm always critical, but you have to understand I'm a one. That's how I am. Or don't say things like, I know I just go with the flow, but I'm a nine, you know. Uh, or like me, don't say like, I realize I'm being dark and pessimistic, but I'm a four. The entire purpose is to identify your shadow side so that you can work against it, not so that you can celebrate and excuse it. And finally, take it all in stride. Try it out. See if it helps. Don't take yourself too seriously. Don't obsess. Don't freak out. Please do not join the cult of Enneagram. It's very popular right now. This is a helpful tool. It is not a way of life. Please. Now, to end tonight... Let me pose an obvious question. Why all this elaborate focus on the shadow side? Why do we need a whole geometric shape to help us figure out what it is? And remember, the three lifelong goals of every disciple of Jesus are to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and to do what Jesus did. We are a church that wants to go on a journey of spiritual formation. I once had a friend who was known almost entirely for his sarcasm. And people thought he was funny. They liked having him around, you know, for a little bit. <laughs> Um, but he was also kind of a jerk, and that was his bag. Eventually, someone pointed it out, and they didn't even mean to be rude. It was just some terribly candid person who said something like, man, I love this whole funny, snarky, mean guy thing you have going on. And my friend was like, mean? He's like, yeah, you know, like the whole jerk motif that you've got going on. And, and then my friend, the one who was being accused of being a jerk, suddenly realized, well, wait, I don't, I don't want to be known for being a jerk. And uh, he'd certainly known that he was a bit snarky. He knew that he, like, he was prone to sarcasm to get laughs. But he'd been totally oblivious to his reputation as being someone who everyone around him thought of as insincere and unkind altogether. And when you linger in obliviousness to your shortcomings, in, intentionally or subconsciously, then you are forever incapable of rectifying them. Problem is... We all have certain shortcomings as human beings, and then we all have many unique shortcomings that are specific to our wirings and our dispositions. And believe me, as like a pastor and dude who's worked at church for a while, I often sit with folks who lament and agonize over the perceived shortcomings of the world around them. Uh, you know, their community is the worst, the church is the worst, the church before this one was the worst, the person who hurt them last was the worst, the person who hurt them before that was the worst. And so often this same person seems completely unwilling to realize that maybe the biggest issue isn't everyone else but you. And I'm not saying everything is and has always been all your fault and if you've been hurt, it's you. I'm not saying that at all. But frankly, if any of it has been your fault, don't you want to know? Don't you want to mature and grow as a disciple of Jesus? I do. I mean, I, I'm assuming I can't be alone in that. And I believe this is what Jesus is getting at when he goes on and on about take up your cross, deny yourself, die to yourself. It isn't a, about eradicating you altogether. It's about eradicating everything in you that stands against the way of Jesus in order that you might become who God has designed you to be. Not a drone, not an automaton, not a carbon copy of someone else, but a mature and healthy steward of the unique identity and calling God the Father has given to you. So if you guys are 
uh, down for that journey and you'd like to go on it with us, then let me pray and invite God's Spirit to speak over us before we worship again.